A man walks down the street, he says, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. Welcome to Lone Star Collective, episode five. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. Today, our guest is Andrea Steele. How are you doing, Andrea? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a rather interesting week. How are you dealing with this heat? We'll start with that. Oh, well, today seems really nice. I don't know if it was just my fans on the back porch, but I went outside and I was like, oh my God, I want to go for a walk. Let's talk about the smokable hemp ban. What are your your thoughts on that recent ruling with that? Oh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm really glad for the outcome of the case. I, that was a good, it was a good case. The attorneys that um, represented the plaintiffs in that case did a really wonderful job. It was a fascinating case. Um, I thought it was just very, very interesting because I, all along, I kind of knew that the rule that was banning the distribution and sale of smokable hemp was not likely to, to pass muster. I didn't think that that was going to hold up. But the the law about you know banning the manufacturing and processing of hemp smokable for smoking, I thought that that was a much tougher case to make. And I thought that when the lawyers, you know, initially filed the case, that it was just really interesting how they framed it, um, you know, based on economic oppression, because it's not difficult for a state to pass a law for any reason that they say is legitimate. And, you know, it's legitimate government reason and got a rational basis. Um, it's a pretty low bar. So it's hard to overcome those. And I thought that their economic oppression argument was pretty ingenious. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that in other states, similar arguments where states have similar language in their constitutions. Um, it's a really interesting argument to make. And I'm, I'm just, I'm happy for them. I'm really proud of them, the attorneys and, and the, the plaintiffs. I think they did a great job. And that was something that when the case first started, um, I'd reached out to Susan and I was like, I'm pretty sure the eyebrow threading case comes in like big time here. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, though, you know, the ones where the eyebrow threading people were went to our state Supreme Court because they're like, oh, it's, it's just it's an unnecessary burden you've placed on, on for training. You want us to go to these training facilities to learn how to do this, but they don't teach this. We don't mind getting licensed and we don't mind being trained, but the training has to actually pertain to us. Right. But completely irrational reasoning, right? You can possess smokable hemp. You can use smokable hemp. You can buy it if it's made somewhere else, but you can't make it here. You can't sell it here, but you can grow it here. It just was the whole, like, the, it was just irrational. It was irrational. And, and that's why it didn't, it didn't make, but, you know, like I mentioned before, it's a low bar. You don't have, as long as you say, hey, law enforcement has a legitimate interest in banning this. But, you know, is it that legitimate if you can possess it and use it? Um, it was strange listening to the hearing, thinking back to that now that we had the state literally say, we don't have a problem with you buying a, a, a flower product, taking it home, and you make your own smokable yourself. Basically, if you rolled your own, they were fine with that. It's just they weren't fine if you rolled it and then tried to sell it to somebody else. And the whole idea where you can't sell it, but you can market it, you can market flour for other reasons. I mean, and, and the state basically telling you that in the preamble to the rule, you know, sell, you know, market it for tea or other reasons. And 
like, why would you ever put something in place where the state is telling you outright how to skirt it? It's just, it, it, that's bad law. I mean, that's, if you, if the state is telling you what to do to get around it, they know that it's just kind of ridiculous. I think it's one of those things that, and I've talked with others about it, is just that they haven't, we're so behind on educating ourselves in this state as far as our political leadership goes that they just did not understand that when they said, well, we don't want to have people smoking this. You can't have a smokable product. And it's like, I don't know if you know this, man, but this product comes out of the ground and that's exactly what it grows is a smokable. It's smokable right on the plant, right, right from it. Yeah. I think in any realm of of cannabis, lack of education is where the bulk of um, opposition comes from. It's been, it was just, it was strange. Like I said, the arguments they put forward in the case of like, if it was made as well as if it was made outside the state, then it can be sold here. But, and you can make it for yourself, but you can't make it for others. And the only reasoning they really gave to it was one, because we want to. And the two was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, was that police officers were going to have a difficult time trying to determine whether or not somebody was smoking marijuana or smoking hemp. And they wanted to reduce, I guess, the availability of that happening. Right. But it didn't, it wouldn't have changed it. You can, it was still plenty of opportunity to smoke hemp, which is okay to do. Um, so I don't know if they were just trying to block up the supply chain and, and it, that just, that doesn't work in practice. Um, the state also seemed to kind of almost uh, have an air that there was, they, they were not to be challenged. And I don't think that that went over very well. I mean, can't just assume anything. So it was interesting. And something I I had worried about with it was, it seemed to be they were trying to put in a corner where say, if they did catch you smoking, you would either have to admit that you created it yourself at which point they would charge you for the manufacture of it and say, well, manufacturing is illegal or you had this, you, they would try to corner you into saying, well, where did you buy this? Who did you buy it from? And then go after that person for either manufacturing and retail or at minimum retail of it. Uh, it just, it, it was, it was a, it was a lot of nonsense, I think, from from the beginning, and 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 not really good drafting that didn't really resolve whatever the concern was. I mean, I think largely the concern for the whole smokable hemp ban was almost as though if we prohibit the smoking or if we prohibit products from being made that are smokable hemp, then, you know, we're making it very clear to everybody that we're anti-marijuana. And it's just the connection constantly between hemp and and marijuana. I mean, they they come from the same plant, but these are two very different regulatory pathways. And the states that are legalizing, you know, comprehensive medical programs or adult use are just on very different wavelengths than states that are limiting only to hemp at this point or to, you know, very limited medical programs. Where do you think that this mentality we saw in the case, like, where do you think that stems from? Is it just our old ways? I think so. I mean, when I think there's a lot of old school mentality and old school thoughts, which are often really, really hard to overcome when you are born and raised with a certain belief system that's ingrained in you, it is very difficult to overcome that. Um, you know, it's not like information about cannabis is brand new and people are learning about it. Information coming out about cannabis now is opposite of information 
that a lot of the older generation has and was was ingrained with growing up. So it's much more of an uphill battle than just brand new information being put out there. Um, this is information and education and knowledge that goes against what a lot of people were already taught most of their life. So it makes it a lot more difficult. I do think it all comes down to education information, but also you need people that are willing to listen and learn and not be so dismissive from the outset. And I think that's what we have a lot of in our current legislature. There's a lot of a lot of um, older mindsets that are just very dismissive. I've, I noticed it seems to be that there's this big, the, to me, the trend is that when somebody experiences the benefit, that then they change their mind about it. And I had a neighbor, she was telling me just this last month, she goes, you know, when people told me, oh, you know, marijuana, that that's for helping people, all these cannabis products, they help people. She was like, that's not happening. Not in my state. Uh-uh, mm-hmm. not in Texas. We're not, we're not allowing that, that, those types of drugs here. And then she had a family member that got cancer, was living out in New Mexico and was able to get treatment under the medical marijuana program there and was seeing amazing results. And she was like, I, I felt like I've been lied to. This is insane. And we have to change this. Yeah. And that's, I, I, unless it touches, it's easy to dismiss when, when you're disconnected from it. But if it hits somebody close to home, you may begin to see things a little differently. And that may be different for somebody who has maybe somebody or a child who maybe, I don't know, started smoking weed and then went in and went on to become, I don't know, a drug addict from other drugs or something like that. And maybe that parent may attribute it to, to marijuana. So they may have like a really negative outset, you know, a, a negative mindset about it, as opposed to somebody who maybe just heard about it, but doesn't have a negative personal experience, but then just was always taught it was bad versus somebody who then becomes, you know, educated and see somebody close to them go through something where they benefit from cannabis and then have a, a change of heart. Yeah, it always hits home when when it's directly impacted at you. So this is Lone Star Collective, Episode 5. Our guest, Andrea Steele, Frost Brown Todd, Attorneys LLC, correct? Brown Todd LLC. She's our guest. We have uh, all of the nine states in Washington, D.C., uh, across the country. She is our guest today here on Lone Star Collective, Episode 5. We will be right back after this quick sponsor break. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. We'll be right back. Bonnet is a proud sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective. Blue Dream Blue Bonnet carries cannabis art, gifts, accessories, and more for you and your friends. Whether it be a pair of cannabis-themed leggings or a rolling tray, Blue Dream carries a variety of products. Visit bluedreambb.com to see their inventory and check back regularly as new items are updated. You can also find them online with Facebook and Instagram under the handle at Blue Dream Blue Bonnet. You can visit them online again at bluedreambb.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. 
Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com and click the contact tab. Oakland Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oakland focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their products, quality, or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, joined by guest Andrea Steele. How you doing, Andrea? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Always like to ask everybody how they're doing after a break. You know, you, you could always be in pain and say, I, I got to step out. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm still good. Well, that's good to hear. I had asked you, and it's okay if you don't know, we were talking earlier. Our teacup law says we can't combust and vaporize, correct? Oh, I, I've got research that. I'm not sure. You have to look into exactly what it says because I know there's some limitations on forms of um forms of the, of the ingestibles, but I'm not sure exactly of the language off the top of my head. I'm, I'm going to pose, I'm, I pose it to you that way we can, I'm going to get the ball rolling where I can get everybody intrigued then as to, because my understanding is that we could not, we can't have flour. And it's because we're not allowed to have anything that's combustible. It was basically stopping vaporizing and, people just literally put in whatever pipe they wanted to. But from my understanding, like and I, I sent you the, the term is called a nebulizer, but basically it turns it into a vapor without having to heat it up. And now I'm wondering now, I hope we can start getting attorneys to chime in. If dispensaries could actually start making nebulizer formulas in Texas as an inhaler. Uh, as my inhaler similar to that. There's a, there's other states that do that and other states that allow it. Um, I would have to know more about the technology behind the nebulizer and also dig into exactly what the rules say. Okay. I was like, I'm, I'm, it, I've seen Oklahoma's had that apparently people were making inhalers, like almost mm-hmm. like albuterol type inhalers. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it depends on, um, like I said, the, the technology and the, the specific wording of the laws and the rules. As I like to quote Dave <laughs> Chappelle. I like the idea. Go ahead. 
I said, it's interesting. And I like the idea. What was it that you just said? I said, I like to quote Dave Chappelle for situations like this. Modern problems require modern solutions. <laughs> That's, that works. So we, um, we were having a discussion before we, we did the podcast about novel cannabinoids. And I mm-hmm. thought you might want to, you might want to highlight that. If you can name a few of them yeah. off and what's going on with those. So, um, we're starting to see some, uh, some trailblazing companies, uh, market different cannabinoids, including I'll, I'll read off a list of a few of them that I've seen. Um, so we see THCO acetate, HHC, which is hexahydrocannabinol, THCP as in Paul or CBDP, uh, THCV as in Victor. Um, I've seen CBL, CBE, CBT, um, CBC. So lots of different cannabinoids that uh, the market's really not familiar with yet that are starting to be marketed by some companies. And so it's very reminiscent of Delta 8 and the whole debacle we've been going through over the last year and a half. I take it um, we were having the, the conversation. Some of these do occur naturally. And some of them do not. They're they're made in a lab from say like from CBD into THC whatever. Correct. Right. So some of these occur naturally, but similar to delta eight, not in large enough quantities to be extracted in an economically feasible manner. Um, but other ones don't exist in nature at all. Like for example, THCO acetate. You will not find that in any plant, to my knowledge. Um, but if you do, you can derive it from a hemp plant. You can extract out the CBD and do some things to it in a lab. I'm not a chemist, so I can't speak to that in detail, but basically tinker with it in a lab and, and cause it to uh, change into another cannabinoid um, and, and add a couple things to it. Like in for THCO acetate, I think you're adding some things to it. So I took chemistry has- classes and I'm not even going to sit here and talk like I'm a chemist about it. <laughs> no, uh-uh. and I, there are, there's a reason why we have chemists and there's a reason why we have lawyers and we don't do the same thing. So I, I'm not a chemist, but um, it, it is good when having these conversations to, to have a chemist involved because they can break down some of the things that we apply the law to, to determine, you know, does it fit? Does it not fit? Does it make sense? We need, um, a, we need a pharmacist with a law degree. Raise your hand if you're a pharmacist with a law degree. You know, there's actually several patent attorneys out there that have backgrounds in science and chemistry. Um, that would probably be uh, good for these type of conversations. Yeah, that's it's something. And I think the the ones that I, I put them in a the list here, um, we were talking about uh, New Bloom Labs is actually going to be testing for THCVA, the THCO acetate, and THCP. And yeah. th- that's something they're adding. And I guess it's what you said. It's There's these new things popping up, so it's going to – going to become incumbent, at least I believe it's going to become incumbent on the, the labs to be able to address these as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for labs to be able to differentiate between them and, and among these different cannabinoids and, and be able to find them because, you know, there's this whole novel cannabinoid market, um, you know, starting off kind of with Delta 8 and branching out into these new ones that we're seeing and that new, even more new ones will, will continue to see. Um, it's just, it's like whack-a-mole. Um, and it depends what what is the purpose. It kind of brings into light what are we doing here with all of these laws and this arbitrary differentiation between hemp and marijuana, and you know being stuck at 0.3% delta nine, 
Um, and what does that mean for everything else that comes from the plant and everything else that you can create with the plant? It's just kind of we're, we're at that early stages of, an, of a new industry that everybody's trying to feel it out and figure out where, where we'll go from here. And at what point will marijuana and hemp merge into one, if it will ever merge into one cannabis industry. And we'll have the different pathways that we you know can come up with products and, and uh, products and, and things for consumers and, you know, industrial, medical, wellness, all the way to adult use. There's just so many different pathways, all from one plant. Well, I want to want to shift gears a little bit here for a moment. Yeah, I know originally you were working with one law firm, and now you're working with another. I want to be able mm-hmm. to highlight who you're working with and put them on on the map because I mean they hired you. You're an excellent attorney. Obviously, these must be great people if they hired you, right? <laughs> must be. Thank you. Um, yeah, Frost Brown Todd is a it's a full service national law firm, big law firm, more than 550 attorneys across um, several states, and they've got a well built out hemp practice. Um, I also bring the cannabis, you know, non hemp cannabis to to the table too. Um, but it's a pretty robust practice there. Um, represent a lot of hemp businesses, including the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, um, which is the largest hemp industry trade association in the country. And so there's also an arm of my law firm that does a lot of lobbying and isn't involved with a lot of lobbying in in various states. Um, So yeah, I was was looking, you know, to, if I was going to make a change and where I was, it was going to have to be to a place where I could have a larger platform and access to a lot of support and resources. And so I'm excited to be able to join Frost Brown Todd and be a part of that team. I am. I'm just truly amazed looking at their website, frostbrowntodd.com. And just like, like we are in these industries, energy, financial services, healthcare, innovation, insurance, mobility and transportation. I'm like, well, that's quite a bit. I I scroll over to practices and it's just this wall of things that y'all cover, like corporate law, real estate, finance, government contracting, bankruptcy and restructuring, intellectual property. Yeah. It's good because when you when you have an industry, for instance, the cannabis industry, the hemp industry, you touch on so many different areas of law that um, in more limited law firms or with a limited number of attorneys, there's just a limited amount of knowledge and experience. But when you have this bank of resources, essentially, of attorneys that are in so many different areas, um, it really helps to, to cater to client needs across the, across the spectrum. (laughs) Um, but you know, anything that a client needs, we've got somebody in our firm that can help, help take care of it. Well, I'm I'm looking at the, this is like industries. Um, I'll just start applying what I I see to to hemp is the way you're saying it. Um, franchise and hospital and hospitality. If you owned a business and you needed to make sure you're staying on the up and up on your storefront and how you treat customers and behave with them, um, mobility and transportation, um, I imagine these transport manifests are a big thing that some of these hemp farmers and possibly even businesses are dealing with. And that's a transportation issue. Um, somebody makes a health care. You want to make sure you're not making improper health care claims. There's health care innovation. Um, insurance is a pretty, a pretty obvious one. We've got e-commerce team. So when we and advertising teams. So there's so many laws and regulations regarding that that are not typically considered that come into play. Um, so it, it's in, in the intellectual property. We have, you know, the patent attorneys, we have copyright and trademark attorneys. Um, so it's, 
it's really nice that, to have access to that many resources for my clients. Well, this is, I don't know, like you mentioned, it's financial services like commercial lending, commercial mortgages, community banking, electronic payments. It's like all of these, it's like all of this involves a business. Like how are, are they able to legally rent the space and can they get a loan to have a business? To, how's their business? It's, it's intricate and complicated. It is. And so when we do this, we have a whole entire manufacturing team with consumable goods, not just hemp. That's just a subsection of our team. Um, so it, it's, it's like I said, it's really, really great to be able to reach out um, and ask questions to other attorneys that, you know, have more experience than me in specific areas. And we just work together. We work together. We have middle market rate. We're going to take another quick sponsor break. This is the Lone Star Collective. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, with guest Andrea Steele from Frost Brown Todd Attorneys. We'll be right back after these messages. And I carry it with me like my daddy did But I'm living the dream that he kept here Moving me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Moving ahead till life won't pass me by Blue Dream Blue Bonnet is a proud sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective. Blue Dream Blue Bonnet carries cannabis art, gifts, accessories, and more for you and your friends. Whether it be a pair of cannabis-themed leggings or a rolling tray, Blue Dream carries a variety of products. Visit BlueDreamBB.com to see their inventory and check back regularly as new items are updated. You can also find them online with Facebook and Instagram under the handle at Blue Dream Blue Bonnet. You can visit them online again at BlueDreamBB.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com. And click the contact tab. Oak Cliff Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oak Cliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their products quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams. back to the Lone Star Collective. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. This is episode five. Our guest is Andrea Steele. Welcome back, Andrea. Hey, I'm 
still here. <laughs> She's still here, everybody. Isn't that wonderful? The wonders of technology. Imagine trying to do this in 1999. So much has changed.、Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine us doing this type of thing on a, on a dial up. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I just, it's one of those things that, speaking of that, it's the current generation, at least to me, I say the current generation,、um, will likely never understand is having to listen to that. Screeching code <laughs> for dial up. As soon as you said dial up, that was like the noise that went into my head. <laughs> it's like, whoa. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, what is my computer doing? Oh, man. Yeah. No, kids these days, it's so easy. When it comes to like phones and phone lines, ask your, ask your kids how they, they would mime holding a phone. <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure people like me and you, when you ask them to do that, they, they, put, they do the, the pinky and the thumb thing, and they put the, you put your pinky in your mouth and your thumb towards your ear. And、yeah. I imagine a lot of the, the, the Generation Z, the Zoomers, if we want to call them that, they make like this thing almost like they're holding a Coke can and they, hold, they put that towards their face. That, that, that's how they mime it. I think I've seen that on like TikTok or something, videos of parents getting their kids to do that. They hold a cell phone and they all do exactly what you describe. So, yeah, how do you hold it? And the parents、I'll、are like finger、phone. and thumb, banana phone. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course. What other women, right? Or at least when you grow up, that's what you were just talking before. When you grow up with things instilled in you in one way, it's really hard to break away from it. So, changing gears, I wanted to talk about something that you and I have had a conversation about. And I want to ask if you can elaborate on DSHS, the Department of State Health Services, changing the definition of THC. You know, the, the state is required or it has the option to just kind of adopt essentially what any changes in the federal list of controlled substances. And so the state has 30 days to reject them. And what happened after the DEA? Interim rule was published. What the DEA interim rule did in part was to kind of bring some of its statutes in line with what the Farm Bill already did. So we know the Farm Bill gave hemp a definition and it carved out hemp from being controlled substance and also carved out THCs in hemp from being. And that was adopted by the state of Texas. That's what our 2019 legislation did. They adopted the definition of hemp,、um, the same as the federal law did. And they redefined controlled substance to exclude THC and hemp. The, definite, the term controlled substance does, has THCs and hemp carved out. And so when the DEA rule was published, what it did essentially was you know, there's a bunch of different laws that all kind of align with each other. And for a period of time, there was this 2018 Farm Bill, and then there was the list of controlled substances, and they were not aligned because they didn't have the hemp carved out. And so what the DEA rule did was turn around and Adjust its language to include the hemp carve out, you know, formally on its side, even though it's already in place、yes. because of the farm bill. And so, what our legislature did, or not our legislature, what our, our administrative body did, what the Department of State Health Services and Health and Human Services did was reject the DEA's changes. And mind you, this is already after they'd adopted the 2018 farm bill changes. So, they rejected the DEA's changes and You know, allegedly they put out a, a notice of public hearing and had a hearing and there were no comments. And that's, you know, they, they rejected the DEA language. 
subsequently the hearing the hearing that nobody knew about the hearing that you know nobody knew about it and i'm not like i'm sure it likely was published it likely it just wasn't published anywhere that anybody in the cannabis or hemp industry was paying attention to and it wasn't you know made a big it wasn't there was no attention drawn to it you know when dishes was going through the rulemaking process um on on the hemp program they had several meetings to talk about it and discuss and so on and so forth obviously this was just kind of one meeting and it was a little bit uh, obscure and that's it. They moved on and they didn't, and that was it. There was nothing left to it. Now what they did in, in theory was reject the DEA's changes, but then subsequently on the department of state health services website, they published a list of controlled substances, which is supposed to be published in the Texas register. And I have yet to see it published in the Texas register, but they put it up on their website and they changed the definition of THC in a way that was not previously published. So I'm not sure when this language was devised and where it was put through a, a process of you know notice and public hearing or in any event just published before it was posted up on their website. And so that's an interesting little tidbit that hangs out there right now where we've got this list of controlled substances that has a definition for THC that conflicts with the definition of controlled substance. Um which ties into the definition of hemp. Oh, yes. So, Real quick, I'm talking about DSHS. Uh, we were talking about open comment periods. I was speaking mm -hmm. to you about that. There's there's yep. one going on right now, correct? Yes, there is. There is an open comment period happening right now for a couple more weeks, I think until, I want to say September 20th, um, it's regarding institutional review boards. So, you know, the Texas Compassionate Use Program in last legislative session that, session that just passed, not only did we have the addition of PTSD and the removal of terminal from cancer, as qualifying conditions and an increase to 1% for the THC cap. But there's also this concept of institutional review boards being able to be created that will allow for the research of low THC cannabis um, for conditions outside of the named conditions, um, as long as there's this institutional review board in place and it's been approved. And so there's an open comment period right now for the rules establishing the framework for having an institutional review board. But the rules are really, the proposed rules are very, very light. There's not a lot to them. They don't do much beyond what the statute says. Um, I think this is just part of kind of the requirements that there's gotta be new rules in place to implement the changes to the compassionate use program in place by December 1st. And so this may be part of that process. Um, so institutional review boards are a thing. Um, they can be created by third parties that get affiliated or affiliate with one of the licensees of the medical dispensing license organizations, which are only two really acting um, in Texas right now of the three licensees. And so uh, usually an institutional review board is kind of like a, like a research, like an academic research institution. It's put in place to make sure that patients are protecting. And so that's, that's out there for, for uh, comments right now. And then once that comment period ends in a few weeks, we may see that rule be adopted, um, potentially some changes to it. We'll see. And then that'll be interesting to see which companies, if any, move forward and, and you know, partner up with one of the dispensing organizations to study the use of, of low THC cannabis on patients who are not um, you know, necessarily suffering from one of the qualifying conditions, but perhaps another one. I had one big thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap this up here for the day, um, what do you advise activists and proponents of the cannabis industry to do to be ready for the next legislative session? Okay, so for this one, I would say first and foremost, start getting your ducks in a row now and learn how to work together and work with one another so that 
there can be a united front when proposals are being brought and uh, there aren't surprises at the last minute and there aren't, there isn't infighting. I think that kind of, that threw things off with last session along with some of the other outside forces that were going on, but there was a lot going on internally within the industry in Texas that just made it difficult to approach the legislatures or the legislators with um, just unified, you know, proposals that the industry was supportive of across the board. So my biggest piece of advice would be to start start working together now so that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, it seemed that we were all on the same page, at least this legislative session, until things were getting through the Senate and getting to the Senate floor. And then it very much turned into pitting. It seemed that one part of the industry was being pit against another part of the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it didn't end up helping in the long run because, you know, nothing got passed except for 30 days with the 30 day extension in another bill, which was, you know, really, really important. And I'm glad that went through. Um, that was but, uh, the TDA sunset bill, correct? Yeah. So I think, you know, the way that that now and now the law is in effect. So it's after September 1st. You now have 30 days. Um, but there was this period of time when the rules became effective at the federal level, I think on March 22nd. And you know that allowed for 30 days harvest. And we were in this interim period where, you know, our, our rules didn't allow for that. And we had to kind of wait. So I'm glad that the law the law got passed and that was included in the sunset bill. That was a good that was a good a good insertion. It would it would seem fitting that we would want our, our program to adjust as the federal law adjust. That way we're never really out of I would say I don't want to say out of the loop, but um we're not really out of line legally. We can make sure we're always federally compliant, but it seems to be that, that Delta eight ban is what kept that from really happening because federally it looks like Delta eight's not going to be addressed anytime soon. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's, we're still waiting on a final rule from the DEA and there was several thousand comments from the interim final rule, probably almost half of which were about Delta eight, maybe, maybe half were about Delta eight, another half about, you know, work in progress and, and, uh, and waste material. But, um, you know, we're waiting to hear from them and it's just, not, it's not a priority. It doesn't appear to be a priority. Um, so we're waiting on that, but the farm bill is going to come up again. It comes up every four to six years. And so we may see another farm bill in 2022, sometime between 2022 and 2024 that may change some definitions or may alter some, some legalities of it. I think it's important, I mean, like at state level to keep the laws as flexible as possible and allow the administrative agencies and the rulemaking process, which is much more flexible and, and does not have to wait every two years to be done, to, to be able to fill in the blanks where necessary. Um, but, you know, we'll see what's coming at the federal level. I wouldn't say it's, you know, probably not any time in the, in the near future within the next month or so, um, but in the next year or so, we'll probably see some some bit of movement or change with respect to kind of some guidance on on Delta Eight and some other novel cannabinoids. Yeah, the, the DEA thing is what something that's I've wondered how they would handle it because it seems to an extent their hands are kind of tied in some areas. Would you say that that's possible because they may do something and people go, well, like what happened with us? And they say, well, the legislature didn't say that. They specifically said this. Yeah, I mean, there would be I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say the DEA's hands are tied. I would just say that the um, the effort to put forth a case and a successful case, it just may not be 
a priority right now. I just, I was, I was thinking about this during the break. I read an article last night on CNN, um, like CNN.com or something like that, about precursors to count to like meth and how this, these huge operations were taking place overseas and, uh, and, 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 and very similar to, you know, K2 and spice and novel cannabinoids and this whole, this whole whack-a-mole thing where the, there's just new chemicals being come up with and, there's this whole issue about like uh, precursors for drugs that will then be made into methamphetamine and how that how that's going about. So I, I think about it. And I'm just like, I, and I don't think from what I've seen that the priority with the DEA right now is related to cannabis. If it's not also involving drug, like major drug trafficking, opioids, meth, weapons, violence. Not to say it won't happen. It just, from you know what I've seen, doesn't appear to be a priority. Yeah. So well, that's going to wrap it up for episode five. Um, shoot off your email so people can get in touch with you if they want to see about hiring you to get legal advice. Absolutely. Please feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me. My email is asteel, A-S-T-E-E-L, at F-B-T, like Frost Brown Todd, law. Dot com. My cell phone number is 281-755-3850. And you can email me or call me. I'd be happy to, to have a talk and discuss whether or not um, my services or our law firm services would be beneficial to your business. Awesome. And you can find her law firm that she's working for at frostbrowntod.com. We thank you for showing up and giving us the insight you have, Andrea. Really appreciate Thanks. that. Jesse, good talking to you. All righty. That's going to be it for episode five of the Lone Star Collective. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. Yet again, we thank our guest, Andrea Steele, for being here with us today. I hope everybody has a great and wonderful week. Adios. Adios.